0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Kari, kariwine.com, like the native wood, the native New Zealand wood, that's K-A-U-R-I-wine.com, in case you don't understand my American accent. Kari specializes in organic yeast and nutrients, they've also got a great Browmeister, more on that in the last episode. Uh, They've got some great barrels working with some fantastic uh, French cooperages like uh, Loire and Sori. Uh, First hand experience with all that. And uh, if you pay attention to their emails they send you, you can score some used white barrels, which I did last year. Uh, so hop on that. Those things are like gold. Get on it, folks. And with Caribbean being experts in the industry, they can offer you know great technical support. I've had. Uh, many long conversations with their sales rep Dean, who covers Hawkes Bay, and they cover you know all of the Australian wine regions and New Zealand wine regions, and yeah, they got a lot of trials going on, a lot of the latest technology, great tanks, uh, you know, just all the bells and whistles that you're looking for, and a nice eye on organic stuff too. So uh, they're not just uh, cold-hearted wizards or something. These guys are, and they're in it in it to win it with all of us. So. Uh, what can I more can I say about it? They're they're good peeps at Kari, so uh, yeah, just visit kariwine.com, pick either the New Zealand or Australian flag, and that's it. Just go to kariwine.com, K-A-U-R-I wine.com. We're also sponsored by Decibel Wines, of course. The Testify is out, guys, officially out to the people, and it's selling. People are uh, hopping on it. We've got it in two uh, degustation menus at some of New Zealand's top restaurants like Pacifica and Hawke's Bay and Siddharth up in Auckland. I've hopped on it early. Uh, I think hopefully they're appreciating that it's kind of a rare wine, a pure expression of uh, New Zealand Malbec. Not only that, uh, Giblet Gravel's Malbec. So. And folks are buying the wine online. We're sending some off to the States this week. Uh, a few throughout New Zealand. Uh, We'll probably send some to Australia soon. I'm heading over there this coming week by the time you guys get this episode. So it's moving. It's only about 226 packs available, so hop on it now. Uh, But the difference for you guys is if you use the promo code DB Podcast, you get 10% off your first order. Um, I'm loving that we held this back for an extra 15 months and released it when we did here in the middle of winter in New Zealand. It's been pretty fun to get a nice big giblet gravels red out there to the peeps. So go to decibelwines.com to order uh, one of the beautiful six-packs we're doing with free shipping. Gorgeous little package. It's now available to ship throughout New Zealand, Australia, the U.S., the EU, yeah, all over the EU. If you're in the EU, we're going to get it to you. Singapore, Japan, Hong Kong, uh, who else am I forgetting? Oh, yes, the U.K. Uh, Brexiters, no fear. I can still ship you wine. Uh, just visit. DecibelWines.com. Click Shop Decibel Wines and then choose your flags. Very easy. Okay, Willie D. <laughs> say about Jason Stent he's a great friend he's one of the most talented winemakers in New Zealand I had the pleasure of working with him for four years four vintages at Paratua still hang around that place and get to see him work in action all the time Uh, I remember a few years back we submitted for the first time in about six years to Robert Parker's Wine Advocate and uh, no surprise the scores and reviews came back were stellar from Paratua I think when I read that, that was probably the best cumulative uh, review of New Zealand Bordeaux wines that ever. I mean, I think we submitted three wines and they were all sort of 93, 94 plus wines. Uh, and uh, the idea was stated that these wines should be revisited again because they're young babies. And uh, Jason just knows how to make these world class wines. And l- I was lucky enough to work with him for a while. But... Uh, I don't want to talk too long because Jason and I had a long chat. I think it was more about cycling than wine, but uh, it was a great conversation. We drank some great wine, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Cheers. Fortunate enough to be a part of a few of those blends. So what's the breakdown of the 2015 12?
1: Good question. Yes.
0: <laughs> Am I, are we allowed to divulge that?
1: Um, <laughs> I, I can't recall off the top of my head the exact percentage, but I think it's 54 cab SAV, um, 30 or 28 Merlot, no, it must be 28 Merlot. Uh, so what does that come to, seventy, eighty two? 82? Yeah, I think about mm. 18% from yeah, something like that.
0: It's pretty chewy. Mm. So uh, I just saw another updated list of the top 25 most or more expensive wines in New Zealand, and 2112 wasn't on it, though there were wines that were cheaper that were on it. So I don't know, we need to get the marketing team on that, I guess. Yeah. <sighs>
1: Well, yeah, Um, yeah. I think I replied to that tweet, and I said uh, that we're we're bespoke, and we're under the radar a little bit. (laughs) And uh, you know, we're a bit like a a a fine suit. Not everyone knows the name, but uh, they know it when they you know they recognise it when they see it.
0: I think it's uh, it's a bit ridiculous, and I have no problem saying that I would think anybody who knows anything about wine in New Zealand, you'd much take a Hawks Bay over a Waiheke wine. Mm. I don't know, me, I would, you know, and I, I think there's some great Waiheke wines, but just even just <coughs> style wise, I prefer the Hawks Bay. I don't, they're just a bit sweatier up there or something, you know, and even the, what is it, Clevenden and uh, the Auckland surrounding areas. I just, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you can have gem years up there, but just on a consistent basis.
1: Yeah, I think they do struggle with, um, yeah. Humidity. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. so. I get a lot
0: more rainfall. And uh, I'm sure if they're charging, you know, and I'm not going to point out any one particular producer, but if you're charging that much per bottle, like you can throw every bell and whistle at it and, you know, say it's exclusive and all that kind of stuff. But when it's really comes down to quality, I mean, Homage is on that list and that's a fantastic wine. So that I get that. Yeah. Um, but. Some of the other guys, I'm just hmm, okay, I wouldn't pay that, you know. But I get the tourist dollar, I mean, that's the bottom line. Is uh, yeah, it.
1: but if you when you taste those wines, they're very classical in style and um, very Bordeaux like, mm. um, but more in the old Bordeaux way, whereas they're a little bit more uh, less fruit forward, maybe less tannic, um, or the tannin that is. There is more of that really structural tannin that takes time to, to come around, um, whereas you know the Hawkes Bay style through the two thousands has become more fruit forward I, I'd say and less um, less uh, classical sort of tannin structured wines. Mm. We're trying to make wines that are approachable in their youth but still ageable.
0: And with the 2112, what was the, I mean, the original vision of that wine? Obviously, when they planted the vineyard, they knew they wanted to make a wine at that caliber. Yeah. And that I've, was kind of the mindset, because you were around when they were <coughs> establishing the vineyard, and you made some of the first red wines coming out of there, right? Uh,
1: Yeah, so, yeah, they were making their wines at Sacred Hill, and that's where I was working at the time. And... um So I was liaising with their winemaker at the time. And um, yeah, so they had two or three winemakers running up to uh, me taking over in 2000. Oh, really? Who else was there? So uh, it was- um, Everett, obviously. Everett, obviously, yeah. Um, And then um, uh, Elise Montgomery. And I think there was somebody else before Elise, but I didn't really- um, Oh, okay, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. So in those early days, it was very young vines, and so they were just making fruity, soft wines that were going into the Stone Paddock range. Uh, so when Avit took over uh, the winemaking, so that must have been for the 2007 harvest, um, the wines were being made at Sacred Hill. So <coughs> those wines looked amazing, and it was a fantastic vintage for Hawke's Bay anyway. Yeah. Um, and then 2008 was uh, another... Cracker Vintage, uh, very different style, um, very similar to what we see in 13 and 14, so really tight acid in 13, really tight acid in 20, 2007, really you know, rich wines, um, amazing tannin structure, um, the kind of wines mm. that will age for a long, long time, and then the 2008s, just really approachable, mm. soft. Uh, a little bit more developed in colour straight away off the bat. Um, but probably higher alcohol as well, I think, the eights. And very similar to 14, exactly the same. Mm. Yeah, more developed colour, but great structure, really approachable in their youth, and um, drinkable right from the word go. Yeah. Uh,
0: so then you were just drawn out of Sacred Hill to... Uh go there to a new exciting project?
1: Yeah, well that's, that, yeah, it was a pretty exciting project, a brand new building, uh, you know, state of the art. Uh, Sacred Hill was, um, you know. Booming at the time. Booming, yeah, it was doing really well. Uh, we were doing really well with our red wine programme. Uh, probably some of, we're making some of uh, New Zealand's best reds at the time, I think. Um, we can honestly say that. Um, the helmsman and uh, broken stone that we were making um, that I was responsible for. Um, I think the 05 and 06 and 04 in the sort of um, (laughs) blind tastings that they did around the country and around the world um, was often um, mistaken for Margot and things like that. So um, So that's very-
0: Margot's Left Bank. Left Bank, right. sorry, yeah. Well, it yeah, mix so up, Cabernet dominant.
1: So the Helmsman should have been the one that, but um, often it was the Broken Stone Merlot that did pretty well as well. But the um, the Helmsman is the one that got, um, I think, was a, always top three and always the first Hawke's Bay wine um, judged at these blind tastings in London and mm. I think they did one in Telpo as well. Oh, the big, yeah, the and, big uh, gibber Gravels yeah.
0: versus France. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's bring it to France, actually. When did you first go to France?
1: Um, I w- well, when I first went to France was 1991. So I was 20 years old, just turned 20. Uh, and I was there to race bicycles. And for, listen to uh,
0: grunge music.
1: I wasn't really into grunge. I was into punk. (laughs) Yeah, so that's right. You're a bit older older uh, than me. Was my my younger brother? He was uh, a little bit more into the grunge, but that was was kind of a little bit
0: after that. No, it was kind of ninety just
1: before the grunge. Ninety
0: two is when it really hit. Yeah, Yeah.
1: but yeah, my younger brother used to send me mixtapes of um, all the all the latest music because he was totally into music and uh, he had a great collection of music and still does. so any music tips i'd just go to him (laughs) but he would send me stuff that i'd never heard of and like he uh he was a the first one to send me the red hot chili peppers and things like that Um, yeah yeah because i was kind of living like a monk pretty much i was eating training sleeping racing that that was
0: so cycling was your your whole life then
1: uh yeah i mean i
0: outside of being a boy (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I... L- you did some work. and yeah.
1: Ju- yeah, I did a little bit of work. Um, obviously, I worked three jobs uh, through the summer. Um, and um, when I came home from France, I'd be working three, three jobs, training, just trying to make enough money to go back. And, um, yeah, but, you know, you're kinda just, um, it's kind of just, it's a twilight zone of your life. You're sort of focused on this one thing, this dream yeah and um everything goes into that um so you know girlfriends and that kind of thing are um are a distraction and um
0: women weaken knees yeah so yeah a, sorry <laughs> pretty much ro- i mean it's a, like it's a, I, it's a rocky quote no it's, but, it's not me I mean, my personal the, opinion
1: yeah oh, i i was easily distracted by girls that's for sure so um and uh most of us were you know young young men with um a lot of testosterone yeah. floating around and
0: hopefully n- natural
1: yeah 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 of course yeah
0: was um, it uh how doping at that stage was that something that uh i mean obviously it was around but was it something that oh, was sort of pervasive all the way into the the amateur was, uh, and yeah, training yeah. level yeah absolutely. Uh, and not oh, just the um what's the the white blood cell thing you take that uh, EPO. EPOs were uh, that always. was
1: pretty new in those days it was uh, still in its infancy there were guys still dying on start lines because they'd taken too much and their blood was too thick and that kind of thing um you yeah, know I, I had uh, teammates that um were taking stuff um that's for sure and um they did really well <laughs> <laughs> but uh for me I'd my whole philosophy was um and and i think also you've got to put cycling into perspective um that in europe it's always been a working man's sport so it's working class it's tough it's hard it's like boxing mm. there's no no um quarter given no. um and it's pretty level
0: the, the playing field's pretty level by just the fact that the equipment is only going to get you so far. Your engine yeah. is you.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're the engine and your mentality as well. How, how tough you are mentally. Uh, how you know how many times you can take a beating and get up. Pretty much. Um, mm. You know, you crash in races. Um, the first thing you do is check your bike. <laughs> get on your bike. Start riding again. Trying to catch. And then you check your your, bod- your body. Um, unless it's really bad, yeah, and uh, obviously it's broken up. and you can't get up. But um, you know, or unless
0: you're tear gassed, <laughs> or is that what it was on this? In yeah, the other. Fr- the tour the other day. The
1: yeah, but yeah, well, that was the police trying to protect the riders. And yeah, they, uh, yeah and screwed that one up. Yeah, yeah got it wrong. <laughs> but yeah, no, the the drugs were were around. Um, uh, I think the easiest drug to have get to get hold of would have been um amphetamines. Sure. Um, obviously, um that's. The easy drug uh, I mean that was, I mean, I never really took that was part of like uh, American
0: uh, baseball for like since the 40s I think yeah. the 50s like you know these guys play every day and probably go yeah. out a little bit at night and so yeah
1: but you know and that's the thing about cycling is um, I think pro cycling once it became once it got into the uh, sort of pro uh, sorry into the Olympic arena um, it became a little bit more international I think. Um, um, America and the English were a little bit more probably um, influential in um, drug testing and all that kind of thing and, and, and having the Olympic Committee involved in, in the drugs that were allowed or not allowed. Uh, so there used to be two lists. There used to be the Olympic list and or amateur list and the pro list. So the pros were allowed to take a lot more drugs than the amateurs, uh-huh. um, because it was their life. It was their job, yep. and so they were allowed to take things to keep them operating because they they only have a limited season. They got to keep racing. They don't get paid if they don't race. Uh, it was pretty tough in those days. Sure. And um and so some guys didn't have salaries and well some guys did have salaries but the minimal like f- you know it would be the equivalent of a $40,000 salary nowadays. Yeah. 45, you know and then Scratching race by. winnings was what got you through. Keeps you hungry. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: so was the uh, f- you know from the U.S. standpoint, I distinctly remember this because I had an uncle and cousin involved. The boom was Greg LeMond in the sort of mid-late 80s, and yeah. uh, I'm assuming there was some uh, the English or, you know, the U.K. as well sort of booming around then. Uh, but obviously it's been part of Europe for forever, uh, you know, these races. As soon as they were having bicycles, there was races. Yeah. Uh, what about New Zealand? What was going on? you know I used to see millions of bike you know cyclists around Hawkes Bay every day and
1: yeah you know. it was um, it was pretty it wasn't big, but yeah we were you know guys like Greg Lemond certainly inspired us uh, but probably the guys that I um, was inspired by more that were English speakers were Sean Kelly, <coughs> who was an Irish rider. probably the best rider to (laughs) never have won a world championship Uh, and Stephen Roche who um, he won the Tour de France Giro d'Italia and the world championship in Mm. the same year Mm. so um, an amazing bike rider um, and one of those guys who he had just a brilliant year where he um, you know won those three races but he in that same year he had a really terrible crash on the track um, and he was a his philosophy was, you had to ride the track in the winter. Um, this is my job. I ride the track in the winter. I ride the road in the in the summer. And I, um, you know, I'm a journeyman bike rider. And mm. you know, I get um, ten years to make as much money as I can.
0: Yeah, there's you're on the clock. Yeah. That's for sure.
1: So he, uh, you know, and he's from a tough, Irish background. Uh, you know, he did milk runs in the morning, went training. Worked in factories, did an apprenticeship, and then then went to race in Europe, um, and and he did it hard, and he rode uh, for tough tough French teams. He was getting overlooked by his coaches and um, and his team, and you know putting pushing the French guys forward. So he went out and he won the amateur Paris Roubaix. Um, And if you've seen Stephen Roche, he's a very slender, slim guy who. is built for climbing. Um, so to win Paris-Roubaix, which is a cobblestone classic, which is usually sort of big, strong, heavy guys that tend to win that race. Um, you know, a guy like that winning that race just because he's so mentally tough and he wanted to prove a yeah. point. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you can sort of see why he won the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia. And just kept yeah. going. Yeah, he's an, an incredible rider, yeah.
0: So you, you've mentioned to me before that you, I think, it's was on your birthday or you won a race or something and you got a wine, a Bordeaux, that sort of opened your eyes back up to wine at, that, at some stage?
1: Um, well, we, we, we used to win lots of wine all the time because we were yeah. racing around Bordeaux. That's where our team was based. <laughs> um, yeah, but Bordeaux especially. Um, so we were, um, our, our team was the uh, Marignac Fellow Club, so we were based in Bordeaux by the airport. Was that planned
0: at all? I mean, did you have Oh yeah,
1: yeah. So, um all the um
0: No, I mean by you though, like
1: Yeah. So the cl- the clubs that I wanted to join in France were all in um wine regions, in okay. so Champagne, um so in, you know, near Paris. Um uh, Bordeaux and uh there was one uh, down near Burgundy, but um, it was actually more south of France, but um but there's grapes everywhere in yeah, France. Yeah, so. yeah, especially down but, there. But um Bordeaux was probably the choice for me, because I liked, even then, you know, (coughs) I loved red wine in my youth, so it was never really, um, you know, something that I was ever not going to want to go to border at some stage. Yeah, so So you might as well live there. Yeah, so we'd win these wines, um, bring them home, sometimes we'd push the cork in, uh, because we're Uncouth and <laughs> didn't have a corkscrew. And, uh, yeah, no corkscrew, and we'd be driving home uh, from the race. Uh, we weren't allowed to drink, obviously, but uh, we did anyway because we were dumb Kiwis and we were young and dumb. And uh, yeah, so we'd push the cork in mm. and shear the bottle around, and the guy driving the car would just be incredulous. He'd just be like, "Oh, what are you doing? <laughs> you never do that." <laughs> but we didn't care. But then we'd give away these wines and. Um, People would say, oh, look, I'll give you some money. Those are really quite expensive wines. And we'd all sort of say, oh, it's okay. We'll just win some more next week. And um, the French guys kept the wines, obviously. They they, they knew something. But uh, the, there was three Kiwis in the team, and we'd just either drink a bottle and then give the rest away. or, um, yeah.
0: So, so do you ever wake up in the middle of the night thinking like, Shit! If I would have just kept,
1: yeah, <laughs> what I, was I wish giving. I had a photographic memory because uh, it would have been not good, good to know what I gave away. But um, you know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, a, yeah. in the end, it's a, it's a drink, isn't it? So yeah. <laughs> um, but then you know, um, that we we got looked after so well by the French guys and um and the families that looked after us that um to give them a couple of bottles of wine. It's
0: was something. there some sort of, you know, pipeline connection <laughs> between? or was it just like a program that you entered to get to be a, you know, on uh, those teams?
1: In those days you had to um, be introduced by your federation. So um, our federation was the New Zealand Cycling Federation. Mm-hmm. So we would have had to have um, got permission from them to uh, apply to a club in France or clubs in France mm-hmm. or to the Federation of France. Federation of Cycling in France, so uh, I would have sent away my palmarès, which is my race uh, racing record. CV. Yeah, my racing CV, yeah. the races I've won and the races uh, that I, you know, I've done well in um, big races that I've done well in and things like that. Yeah, so we got into this club and um, and mm. it just happened that uh, the, the the guy who uh, owned the club and the bike shop that we did some work at. Um, that um, the club was named after as well. Uh, well, it was, sorry, the club wasn't named after him, but he was one of the main sponsors. So everyone kind of knew him as Jacques Swear. Jacques so they kind of knew our team as the Jacques Swear team, not Marignac Velo Club, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because we were sponsored by. Um, yeah, yeah, you end up calling uh, what's on their jersey yeah, or, yeah, or written so, on um, So anyway, this guy, Jacques Sweer was um, one of the youngest riders uh, to represent France. I think he went to the Olympics when he was 16 to ride on the track. Uh, He was a world champion, uh, an Olympic champion. Um, Yeah, just great, great rider. One of the best sprinters of that era. Mm. Um, But he was so good all round, um, they liked him in the Team Pursuit team. So um, I think their big rival at the time was Germany. So I think Germany might have beat them in the Olympics and then they beat them in the World Championships or something like that. But anyway, he had all these trophies, gold medals, Olympic, um, silver medals, and you know, a World Championship gold, silvers, e- everything. And um, yeah, uh, so his story was he crashed, broke his neck in a car crash uh, following a bike race, after oh, he sure. had a mechanical, um, so he couldn't race anymore. So he um, became five times um, skeet shooting champion of France. <laughs> <Just, laughs> so You're yeah, one of those guys, Yeah, you know, yeah just he could just do he his his anything. Yeah, yeah, he, was, yeah. Uh, he was an incredible guy. So, um, you know, and really competitive. Um, Clearly, if yeah. if we were say uh, playing patonc, he would be able to just you know smash us yeah um he would be able to put the, the the steel ball right beside the jack every time and smash our ball away i got, I got a couple um, bodies like that yeah, but And but anything um you know if you're mucking around well you know we you know being young guys we might be mucking around sort of pretending to box or something shadow boxing each other you know just as a joke and then he'd want to step in and be part of it yeah he'd turn anything into a game everything was always competitive and and he'd be like oh you're dropping your guard and giving you advice and always coaching you and it's like okay Jack we're just mucking around (laughs) no no (laughs) he took everything you're going to do it do it right yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly but yeah so he um, you know obviously being a a great rider and uh, he'd won um, lots of wine as well (coughs) in his youth Uh, he'd been uh, at some race and He'd won it, and he got given a magnum of Obreon. Um, and there was a photo of him with his son Canoe uh, on the um, top tube of the bike uh, with the bottle in the wreath of flowers, because you always get flowers when you win a win a race. Um, so he's standing there with in this photo with this bottle of wine, and um, so this is 1991. It's a family barbecue. Um, so I'm the only Kiwi there, um, from the team. At the other guy, I don't know where the other guys were. Um, so Jacques pouring this wine out of a magnum, and um, I tasted it and I was just blown away. I just couldn't believe that it was uh, 30 years old. So it was a 61 O'Brien mm. out of magnum, and uh, yeah, I couldn't believe how good th- this wine was and that it was 30 years old. It was 10 years older than I was. And yeah, I've—I don't think I've he- ever had an experience like that again either. But um, that was just—it uh, was mind blowing. Yeah, me. Yep. yeah. So that was my epiphany moment for wine. But what I noticed about the wines that I had in France at the time was the similarity to Hawkes Bay, and um, so yeah, for me, a, a, a sort of the penny dropped, and I thought, well. Maybe uh, making wine back home as the as the way forward, so I'm lucky. not going to turn pro. So yeah,
0: that's so um, so lucky in that you had that to come home to as well as an option, and that Hawks Bay is is what it is. Because um, I can honestly say I didn't have that as an option, yeah. <laughs> and a lot most people, you know, most people in the world obviously don't have that on their doorstep and that it would have been exciting to come back to because um, I was thinking about uh, you know some of the guys that I've interviewed and women that I've interviewed and some of them are really young and younger than me and then you know some older guys as well that were kind of pioneers of the area but uh, it seems like you would have sort of hit the ground running when you got back, what were what the ni- or so not 90s? Yeah, kind? so
1: I raced in 91 and 92, and um, I was actually going back for the 93 season, and um, and I'd learnt a lot, and I, I had a plan. and um, But then uh, I got into the EIT <coughs> program, and um, yes, I started studying wine. And, um, but yeah, so I had to do... I was pretty unprepared because I hadn't done chemistry at, at high school and things like that, so I had to do all those bridging courses and, mm. and things like that and try to catch up quickly. Um, but yeah, so I did the degree course, but I never actually quite finished it. So I had- You're still le- you're still studying? I'm still studying, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well you never stop learning in this game. And uh, yeah, so I think I had six months to go, but I got a job at Sacred Hill. and. Um, so um the plan was to do correspondence study and just finish it off and it was going to take me a year um but i think the first year i worked at sacred hill i averaged six, 60 we- hours a week something like that yeah <laughs> so well yeah that's
0: was kind of was getting to is when you wasn't like oh what do we do we just like things were happening in hawks bay at that point and there was a bit of an expansion going on and particularly with sacred hill you would have been yeah like Absolutely. I said, hit the ground running, there's plenty to do and just get to work and yeah. get it done kind of thing. So
1: they uh, set up one of the first contract uh, facilities in, in Hawke's Bay, you know, doing work for other people. So mm-hmm. we were doing doing work for, um, and I guess they continued to do that as well, but we were doing work for they definitely Matua, do. um <laughs> at the time. Um, who else? Um, I think Geeson. um yeah, anyone that was crushing fruit in Hawke's Bay and sending it away, we'd, we'd do all the pressing for them and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So Round the um, clock, then, if you're doing uh, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. yeah, and those first couple of years, we didn't have the best equipment, and uh, yeah. uh, Like the, the first full vintage I did at Sacred Hill was 95, and it was probably one of the most disastrous vintages you can imagine. Um, we w- we didn't really pre-scrapes. We kind of just sieved them. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So slop first. Yeah. There was a lot of additions going on, in, in those days, trying to just make something drinkable. So I think the 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 uh, triumph from the '95 vintage was that we made some wines that were actually drinkable. Mm. <laughs> um, uh i can remember fermenting uh in the back of trucks um doing our reds in the back of trucks it was the we had no more tanks left um so the truck turned up and luckily it was our own truck and we didn't have anywhere to put it so we um i think we crushed into bins and then tipped it all back into the truck and (laughs) fermented it in the back (laughs) of the truck and you know that was the kind of stuff we were dealing with in those days but it was fun and it was exciting and um you know, we, we'd work 23 hours straight um, and get three or four hours sleep, maybe five hours sleep if you're lucky, and then go straight back into it. We'd have breakdowns, we'd have all sorts of stuff going on. And um, you know, you learn a lot when you're under pressure like that. And... Um,
0: Mostly it's a mindset though too that, you know, I, uh, I'm often reminded of, uh, well, you know my brother, Uh, I took him to a hot yoga class one time. (laughs) He's not the fittest guy at the, you know, this is only a few years ago. He used to be really fit, but uh, not most recently. I took him to a, I just, I was up in the morning one time, and he had probably worked at the bar the night before. And I said, oh, I, I can do it. What are you talking about? I said, all right, well, come on with me, you know. And he came with me, and 15 minutes into the class, he looked at me, and he, I mean, he verbally said i'm gonna fucking kill you right <laughs> but he made it all the way through and you know there was some funny quotes during it i distinctly remember the the um teacher saying to him or instructor saying to him okay if that's as far as you can go that's that's where you're going to be today you know and uh, that's good it's what you know but anyway he got through it and he said and i said man i, I thought you were going to leave you know i thought you were going to walk out and he said he said no i've been through double sessions which is kind of like uh when you're in, you know in, growing up and playing uh football gridiron american football you do these like double and triple session practice days and it's just hell i mean it's just you're just dirty and you know it's so hot out it's middle august and everything and and it's true once you've been through that and you get mentally over the fact that you can barely stand up anymore like you know vintage Mm -hmm. long vintage hours or something it just starts becoming funny and you start yeah. doing weird shit. Like humor. Yeah, real dark. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, just, and I think, uh, the good places that you work and the good people you work with are always, you know, at, the, at some stage will sit down and have a good meal and have a good drink and, and a good laugh. So. Yeah.
1: And quite often those people you, you know, you're still friends with because you've gone through a you know, pretty tough, tough, yeah. uh, few weeks. And Been through um, the fire. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You I, don't. I've, um, yeah, I found the same was when you know I first left school, didn't quite know what I wanted to do other than go overseas and race. Um, so we'd work all sorts of jobs, and um, so some of the work we did was things like um, hay carting, and um, you know I'd have um, Josh Cronfeld on my hay carting team, and he's an All Black, you know, <laughs> and, and he wasn't then, but you know he was um, he was studying at uni. But he was a machine, man. And trying to keep up with him, was, you were just letting him down the whole time. So and <laughs> in, in the end, he would just say, you guys just, you drive the truck, you you do this and you do that, and I'll just start throwing them. And we used to have a machine which would um, carry the, the hay bales up onto the truck. Little conveyor kind of thing. It wasn't fast enough for him. Yeah, so <laughs> he'd just <laughs> he be chucking it. He would just throw them on by hand. He was a, he was a beast. But um, yeah, so, you know, a a guy that physically strong and working with guys like that, you know, you're you're seeing when, yeah, and when you're only, um, 60, uh, 62 kilos or something, and, uh, he's like 85, um, and most of it's in his arms. (laughs) It's pretty, um, it's, it's a good character building experience. Yeah.
0: And so, um, yeah, it was sort of all go. You know, we're kind of hopping around timelines here, but, you know, you st- came full-time over at Paratua in 08, 09, 09? 09 uh,
1: yeah, end of end of 08. So I think I joined in uh, June or August. June? No, it must have been July. July of, or late July.
0: And was it kind of half and half? Some of the Were the winery built yet, or...?
1: Uh, the winery was built, uh, Well, the barrel rooms, and barrel hall, and I think... We were constructing the tank farm at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, um, yeah, so that all happened uh, through the sort of summer of 08 and it was ready for the 2009 vintage. Um, but how, how it is now wasn't um, how it was then. So, um, there were probably about. I don't know, ten or so tanks that were there that are now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we put them in a bit later on. So um, that was uh, just a small project a few years later that we did, and uh, I think you were there when we. No, it would have been in. just not
0: long before I joined.
1: I uh, must have been just before, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, oh, maybe that was twenty twelve that we put those in. Yep, I yeah, I think that sounds been. right. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, you know the thing with winemaking is you you get all these. Um, different roles that you end up doing like you become a project manager of you know, installing a whole lot of tanks and refrigeration and making sure the timelines are right um, and, and all that sort of stuff and um, uh, you know you become an engineer you, you figure out how to fix stuff because uh, so you can't always wait for a technician to turn up yeah. Um, so yeah so there's always things that you're doing
0: um, yeah, I probably learned more about other things than, than or, maybe equal <laughs> or something. But yeah. you know, how to chase up your pallets <laughs> in, in logistics, and you know, just as much with that sort of stuff, yeah. and how to send a, some wine overseas, and then obviously all the stuff I learned uh, in the winery, and uh, being, I felt like a lot of times at Paratoo, I was an assistant custodian. You know, and you were the chief custodian. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Sometimes it does feel like yeah, you're, you're. Without leader. an
0: engineer on yeah, site, I yeah. mean, the bigger wineries have. Yeah, you know chief toilet cleaner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, we've plenty, plenty of work doing that. But the uh, yeah, some of the bigger operations obviously either have an engineer on call or have one mm. pretty much on site. I imagine Villa up the road will have somebody there yeah, when uh, they're done, so. yeah. when they're done building to just for at least for if there'd be a full-time position with everything they have going on down there. Mm. Uh, so it was all go, and then sort of went splat.
1: Yeah, well the GFC, well it pretty much already started in 08, but um, we we were kind of immune to it in New Zealand, and um, but this company uh, just happened to have a lot of business uh, in the States and they were importing, or oh, sorry, exporting to um, Chicago a lot, a lot of their wine was being sold in Chicago and LA, San Francisco. <coughs> and um, the w- the funding that was coming into Paratura in those days was from um, the Fisher family, um, so it was, a, it was a couple, Gary and Brian Fisher, um, and they had a lot of business with small banks in the US, um, rural banks, I don't, I don't know, they're probably... Small in the US context, but in uh, the New yeah. Zealand context, they're probably massive. But um, anyway, small rural banks, and um, uh, so they were selling them things like um, pens with lights, all that sort of stuff. So they had a business in China making um, that stuff, swag. Swag is that what you call it? Yeah, That's I don't know what you call it.
0: Um, I can't figure out if swag. We call it landfill here.
1: Yeah. But anyway. <laughs>
0: I can't figure out if the term swag came first from junk like that or uh, cheap weed. Yeah. Because it's used for both, and as long as I've known, and certainly way back into the 70s. So, swag, you know, you hear radio stations giving away swag. Right. Which is, you know, stickers and yeah, whatever yeah. else, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so they were making all that sort of stuff. Um, and this was before the real, you know, digital age of. Um, everything being on your phone and that kind of thing. So they had like key rings where you could have um, photos 30 on or 40 it. photos on yeah, there. Or, that's whatever. Right. And, um, or maybe you know, little MP3 players and stuff like that. Or radios and you know just stuff Nick, that banks could give. It, knickknacks that banks could give away as enticements or whatever. I don't know. I don't know how you use them. Open an they, account and get, know, a, get, a, get a a, a, a free scratcher. Yeah, something like that. Yeah so yeah so that all dried up so um they were scrambling to try to um grow the markets as quickly as possible to um meet um you know the the, the cash flow but it, you know it got too hard and too too difficult um so they sold it and in uh, 2011 a group of uh, Chinese and New Zealand investors bought it, Chinese citizens and New Zealand citizens. And um, yeah, so ever since then um, we've been pretty much exporting to the China market, bit to the UK, a little bit to Australia um, for a little while. Um, that's dried up because the distributor went under. But uh, that seems to be par, par of the course in uh, the wine business. <laughs> Small distributors go under a lot. And, and uh, big ones. Kind of like restaurants as well. Yeah,
0: big yeah. ones. There's just a big merger in the States. Yeah. I'm reading about recently, and it's it's uh, always changing, and you think you're uh, all set to go. And I think some of that stuff that's really interesting that, you know, we are, we're <laughs> obviously always trying to sell our wine and be um, – uh, you know, conscious of keeping the wine out there and people interested in it and tasting it. But uh, often when you're on the restaurant side or the retail side, uh, you I, you know, if I'm like talking to those guys or talking to our distributor or something, that you hear of the flip side being really scary for them is when these mergers happen that oh we lost Bacardi or we lost yeah, right. you know ge- you know which is there's one in the you know in the states where they lost like geese in and somebody else went to you know big Marlboro producers went combined with this other one and these other guys are left in the dust and you don't think about how much people just need products you know they need like wines and if they if that dries up then all of a sudden there's you know thousands of accounts out there that don't need to see them anymore because Mm. you don't give them your Bacardi rum anymore or whatever it is, you know? And, uh, and so there's a little bit of like, just keep making good wines and you'll find, you know, you'll, uh, something will open up for you if you just keep hustling. Um, But man, it is a hustle. I'll tell you that, you know, Totally. Um, but you've traveled quite a bit on behalf of uh, selling wine. Uh, I know you've been to, when was the last time you were in China, by the way?
1: Uh, last year, so we've got a, we've got Vince on board now, so um, that's take the pressure off the a little pressure bit. Pressure off me, I haven't had to go, but the yeah, China market's an interesting market, and um, oftentimes when you go there, you're not really selling as such or doing too much of the. Ground. You're the European you're really, face. You're just the w- yeah, the European face or the the Kiwi face. The Kiwi face, yeah. And um, yeah, so you just have to sort of rock up, smile, wave and get some photos taken and
0: What do you, you like about it and what you don't like about it? Yeah, I know you like the food a lot of times, right?
1: Uh I don't always like the food. Um, yeah. yeah, some some of the foods I could <laughs> totally forget about but, um, Some of the
0: fermented uh blo- you know, uh, stinky yeah, stuff the, or whatever. The
1: fermented um, what is it? Uh, tofu. Oof, yeah. It's pretty rough. Um but, you know, I suppose it's a bit like a um a really strong cheese or something. But mm. um, Taste. Uh, yeah, in a poise or something like that, but oh, it's probably worse than that. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. But um but you you only really see that sort of food in the street markets and, and that kind of thing and um and there's like a sort of a twenty or thirty metre zone where it's really rough and then the you know, it, the smell dissipates after a <laughs> short while and then something else takes over. Um but l- what i do actually like the street food in china um, yeah. lots of barbecue type little um stalls and things like that but uh when they do something really well uh they th- they go over the top and um their banquets are always amazing and um if it's a top-end banquet uh it's pretty serious the, the presentation's top-notch and um yeah the food is always top quality
0: Yeah, obviously I've never been, or not obviously, but I just haven't been. And uh, a couple things from memory that stand out that you've talked about uh, that I thought was kind of interesting and worth mentioning. One is that, you know, as part of the new China or what goes on in that you don't own land, and they sort of relocate all these people from the countryside and just say, well, we've built this high-rise for you amongst a city of millions of high-rise a city that you and I have never heard of that you know probably mm. 20 or 30 million people live in or something that people are still people and they want to con- they end up all down on the street anyway and all congregating and cooking down yeah. they don't the, want to be up in the building Well,
1: they don't know how to use an electric oven or an electric um, cooktop yeah they've always cooked with fire so yeah so you see these beautiful apartments. Um, high-rise apartments but yeah everyone's down on the street doing their thing and trying to raise ducks yeah on the the concrete (laughs) that's awesome yeah that's um
0: so you can't change people yeah not in that generation at least and maybe the next generation
1: they don't know any difference so they've come in from the country maybe their um children have um bought them the apartment or the government's. Place them in the apartment, and um, maybe their pension pays for the rent of the place or whatever. But um, yeah, it's just really interesting that yeah you see, it. <laughs> and and I think those older people they like to interact. Yeah, the
0: yeah. so people are social yeah. and they're
1: gonna. There's maybe modern China with the millennials and the, everyone on their phones all the time, they're, they're oblivious. They they're just looking at a screen, and um, like I I almost. Never have my phone out when I'm in China because you're just I'm head on a around. swivel. Like, wow, you're the country right. bumpkin. Yeah, yeah I'm, I, I am the country bumpkin. <laughs> yeah. it's like oh my god, look at the size of that building, and that's like forty stories high. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's that wasn't there last time I came here.
0: So, where's the main uh, regions and cities where you spend most of the time? Um,
1: so we go to the big cities, Beijing and Shanghai, um, and. Um, Mainly we go to Shandong, the Shandong area. So that's the Yantai and probably the most famous place would be Qingdao. So that's where the beer from China comes from or the most famous beer, Qingdao beer. Uh, And it was also the place where the um, the yachting was held uh, at the Olympics uh, a few years ago when they had the Beijing Olympics. So Qingdao was the the yachting um, hub. Uh, Beautiful cities. Um, so uh, Yantai is um, Austrian sort of influenced. And like so
0: just copied or influenced?
1: I oh, know the Austrians. There's were, Austrians that were there, were, were there because they're old there. colonial then, stuff. Yep. yep. And then Qingdao was more uh, German. So there the, you go, the beer and the, and the lager beers and things like that out of there. So the um, architecture in Qingdao is very um, Germanic. And same in Yantai, um, very Germanic or Austrian um, influenced. And then you go to Shanghai, um, and it's there's the sort of the Bund where these these big sort of Romanesque English sort of style um, buildings with big pillars and things like that. So that's sort of English um, and sort of French architecture from what, what do you call it? Post I don't know what you call it sort of. Um, post-colonial romanesque or uh, whatever i don't know but anyway so you've got the pillars i'll call my and cousin then, he knows and it. then the um yeah big oh, the triangle triangular yeah like are. almost greek yeah, influence too yeah, yeah. yeah just whatever and um old
0: old <laughs> but yeah. uh not art deco
1: I, no yeah <laughs> i should know the name because i i love architecture so i should really know what it's called but anyway i, I forget we can but,
0: mention it in the comments of the podcast yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Um, uh, But then you go to other parts of um, that area, the old part of Shanghai, and there's lots of French, old style French villas and things like that, and um, I think they call it hutong or hutong or something like that. And they're they're all sort of one level buildings or two storey buildings, and um, very narrow narrow streets and things like that, and so a lot of those areas are being sort of turned into sort of cool bars and and that sort of thing, and um, so you kind of walk down these narrow um, alleyways and bang, there's a really cool cocktail bar and and places like that, so.
0: Do you see like a a bigger influence from, uh, I'm asking this sort of uh, having my own thoughts on it, as far as younger people and psalms coming up and being a lot more knowledgeable about the world of wine and cocktails and, you know, international uh, beers? Because yeah. I've seen more probably women and uh, even gay men and things like that that, I'm a, you know, whether how much influence they had in China in the past, I think it was pretty male-dominated probably. Um, yeah, I think... Maybe um, the business owners are still old guys, you know, <laughs> but... Some
1: it's of the influencers, would you say? A f- yeah, a lot of the younger influencers are probably not that young. They're probably in their 30s, mid-30s. Um, but the appetite for knowledge is huge in China. And people love to get a certificate. So if you go and spend a few hours learning something, they want yeah. acknowledgement. So um, so a lot of... Um, yeah, a lot of those WSET courses are really popular because people want a qualification. They, they, they're spending this money on this wine, they're learning about wine, they want something out of it. Um, whether they use it or not, it doesn't matter. They just want to be able to say that they've got that qualification. Mm. But as far as um, uh, wine knowledge goes, they're very lucky because the, the whole wine world is pushing all their wine into China. So, if you live in Shanghai or Beijing, you could taste s- the best wines in the world every day. Yeah. And there'll be a tasting on every day. There's y- you'd I think you'd get fatigue from the amount of great wine that you could taste, and, um, and tastings you could go to, and, and that sort of thing. So, in that way, they're really lucky, and they have a huge advantage uh, probably like the the uh, US was in the eighties, and um, you know after Parker sort of really. Um,
0: yeah, and the sort of wave of Italian and obviously yeah. French and sort of that tie to the old world. Yeah, and, and e- everyone California to be wines in or the yeah.
1: US market all of a sudden. Um, yeah. yeah. So. And yeah, like like in America, the the amount of wine. The wines you can get in America, it's, it's, it's fucking incredible. incredible. <laughs> it's amazing, yeah, <laughs> it's, compared to what we can get yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. So That's kind of what's annoying about it, is not yeah, that you can do that in America. But. Yeah, so the, the wines we get here um, are really expensive, and it's hard to get a, a real good picture of a region based on just the wines that are available in our market. Mm. Um, so if you're doing a, an MW or a Master Sommelier, and the guys that have done it in the past, uh, man, they must have committed a lot of cash to do that and a lot of time. And, you know, hats off to those guys. That have done yeah, they it didn't it have in the New Corbin Zealand. back then yeah, either. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I've, I think um, the Kiwi guys that have done it in the past uh, have, uh, you know, uh, they've done it hard. Um, but then, you know, talking about China, um, those, those young guys and girls that are coming up and yeah, the knowledge that they have is mind-boggling. It's, yeah. um, they're very, very good at um, extracting every bit of um, information that they can, and um, and they'll ask you questions sometimes that you're like, whoa. you're kind of like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> let me get back to you on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do <laughs> so, some research. Yeah, yeah so um yeah it's really uh it's really good it's really challenging when you when you meet people like that, but then a lot of a lot of the stuff you have to talk about is you know pretty boring and um.
0: mm. but you've also mentioned that some of your cooler experiences there have been with other winemakers and you know uh, visiting some of their um, not so much that you love their wines necessarily, but that there's a knowledge and a thirst for it. Uh in that realm too and we've had some obviously visitors come yeah. to Paratour over the years.
1: I, th- I think um, one of the things I, I've always liked to do whenever I travel is I don't like to go to all the touristy areas, I like to go where the locals go and um, so if I have downtime and, and I'm by myself, I'll hunt out areas that, are, that seem to me to be very authentic and, and local. And um, and in China it's pretty safe. I mean, yeah, you, know, you, you could get mugged, but it's not likely. Um, yeah, and
0: you're less likely to turn a corner into a bad neighborhood, would you say? Yeah, 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 that's it's just um, not going to happen.
1: Uh, yeah, the Chinese are pretty polite people overall, kind of like the Japanese. They, you know, just um, you'd have to be doing something pretty bad to um hmm. to um
0: a little more conservative.
1: T- yeah, to get um beaten up or whatever or just be in the wrong place at the wrong time which happens but um yeah my experience has been that when you sort of hunt out these little um, places um, that are off the beaten track you can have a really good experience and um, eat something or taste something that Legit, amazing. yeah, legit, but, yeah. Just but <laughs> you don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you gotta take a photo and get get it explained to you later. And then <laughs> when you get it explained to you, you probably didn't want to eat it in the first yeah, place. you didn't but, know what you know. I, what did I just eat? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, but yeah. Uh, so I've got a bit of a, a knack for finding a bar in China. So that's my sort of um superpower.
0: Mm. Yeah, your superpower.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so um, <laughs> so yeah. And I I kind of like um, I kind of like bars that are sort of lowbrow I suppose I don't really like too many high high end y no, places yeah, yeah. I, which actually that's a lie I do I really love them but um, yeah I, I I have this knack of finding co- really cool bars that are sort of just i think almost I, like a speakeasy yeah type uh, authenticity yeah. is probably
0: yeah. the word even yeah. if it is a little more high end it's authentic maybe it's been there a long mm-hmm. time yeah. and they made these cocktails or they do you yeah. know you're always looking for that type yeah. of place um
1: and and the, the funny thing is you know we don't have you can't get uh, facebook or twitter or any of those applications in, in china so everything's in chinese that you're looking for and um It's uh, yeah, it's just really funny that um, it's almost by I don't know. It's like divining. You just kind of sniff things out, and then why don't I go down this way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's
0: the way it used to happen. Yeah, (laughs) that's when I you know when I lived like in Brussels or outside of Brussels. Yeah. uh, Or when I traveled around, even you know we traveled around in the states with the band back in the days that you did you just kind of asked around or yeah. uh, you know at least then you got some English but you know you just kind of get a feel for like oh, this this street looks like something's going on down yeah. here yeah, uh, exactly. what's going on yeah. over, these houses look a little more interesting okay yeah. what's happening down here yeah. just sort of let your nose follow your nose you know yeah
1: absolutely and um, yeah so that's my uh, my superpower when it comes to um, china anyway um, yeah, so and also um taking little risks and opportunities when they when they present. Um so one of the good experiences we had, um, as a group of Hawke's Bay winemakers in in China was um this Aussie guy said, Oh, I've got this little whiskey bar that I run, you guys should come and check it out after dinner or after your event and so yeah, we all went our separate ways but um I got everyone together to say, yeah, let's go to this place and um I was the last one to arrive. So I was um, using the WeChat app to try to tell everyone where it was and take a photo of this place. And they were all in there already. And um, they were like, yeah, no, we're we're all here, come on down. And um, I was like, come on down. (laughs) Okay, so we went in, the elevator goes down to the car park. Uh, We get out, it's just cars everywhere. And then this, and it's pretty dim. Mm. And um, so we look across. and. Yeah, there's this light sort of shining in the corner, so you walk over there, and yeah, the next thing there's this whiskey bar, and uh, and the funny thing was, it's also like a golf driving range. <laughs> <laughs> but um, how th- how the whiskey bar worked was you um, you you join the club, and whenever you travel, you just bring back a bottle of interesting whiskey and you put it in there, and if you're part of the club, you get to drink anything, and. Um, Whatever's on offer. So um, this Aussie guy had invited us there as a group to, um, you know, partake of all these fantastic. Whiskeys. Sure. Yeah. Sounds good. And uh, and they just had all these amazing um, old um, whiskey adverts and things like that, and they had videos of whiskey players. Of course, it'd, be the, it'd be the
0: same for uh, spirits as it would be for um, you know wine that everybody wants their um, boutique. Or even, you know, their high-end spirits get over there. Single bourbon, yeah.
1: Single barrel bourbons. There was uh, amazing stuff. And yeah. So, and this guy, he knew his stuff. And um, I had uh, some pretty, pretty nice whiskies and um, bourbons as well that night. And um, I learned a lot. Um, but yeah, I think the the thing I learned the most was the those single barrel bourbons. Yeah, you I love bourbon. The, the, it's, there's a banana Easter note to them, mm. pretty much every time.
0: I don't, and I'm not afraid to say that I like a bit of sweetness to go along with the sort of uh, some of the scotch. You know, I probably would need to spend a bit more time with scotch to really appreciate. And there's some single malt stuff, and I've had some yeah. scotch nights that I thought were pretty fun. <coughs> but uh, bourbon, the uh, yeah, the aged bourbons are pretty fun. Yeah, you know, just that hint of sweetness in there from whether it's the you know, toasty American oak, or whatever it is, or there's actual sugar in there. Um, I, I, possibly, I like that, and uh, obviously love to go home to McCrossin's to taste what they're pouring, you know, much like their beer list, the uh, spirit list has gone into, you know, there's the classics there still, you know, you still find a Bombay Sapphire behind the bar, but there'll be some gins and whiskies and bourbons mm-hmm. and stuff that you've never heard of, and. Uh, from all over the world so yeah. it's just the way the trend is going yeah. so uh, yeah
1: so I guess we're sort of reverting back to the 50s where we're all going to be drinking cocktails and uh, mm. uh, uh, you know, that'd be
0: pretty cool if we could be uh, s- like s- mad Shusing. men you know we could have martinis <laughs> at lunch and stuff well speaking of which this 152112 uh, I just keep filling up my glass uh, uh, it's very weird. I would say more so than the 13 very drinkable young. So. Yeah,
1: but it, um, that acidity really, is really showing at the moment, so um, it's going to be a keeper, this one. Mm. Oh, the, like all, the, all yeah. the 2112s are anyway, but um, I think this one's <laughs> somewhere in between the 13 and the 14 in, in approachability and in its youth. But uh, with a nice juicy steak, it's still going to be mm. a pretty good drink right now, but this won't be released uh, for a little while.
0: Yeah, bottle age so. is nice to yeah. do. What uh, So what's the latest? I mean, I sort of know what's going on over there, but if you had to sum it up and uh, where things are heading with Paratua, it's, it's <laughs> always seems like continuously to be, because of its history, uh, a winery and producing wines that are somewhat, well, bespoke is what you said, but under the radar and sort of not always around everywhere you go though they're pretty easy to find you can go online and order some wine it's it's pretty easy to find nowadays but uh it seems like the nature of that place and if there is a spirit around that place it's that it's somewhat at arm's length in that sense uh there's talk of a tasting room at some stage and there's uh you like know, to talk yeah I like to talk big <laughs> yeah but uh, a little more distribution in New Zealand now yeah. uh, with a great company so we're seeing yeah, the wines so around a yeah, little more
1: yeah right so we've got Mineral on board um, or we're on board with Mineral now um, which is great they're a great company and uh, we're really looking forward to um, um, developing the New Zealand market with those guys um, as a winery and vineyard we're in in um, Conversion to organics, um, so we're going to be planning to be fully organic by 21. I think 2021. Yep, should be. Um, well, yeah. you're, you're uh, going well.
0: this this podcast will have posted uh, the week after I post uh, my interview with James Milton. So uh, in a timely fashion, with he was just up in Hawks Bay for a family of 12 tasting, and we were we were talking about. I can't remember if it was on the podcast or before or after about uh, a little bit of excitement around, finally, around organics and Hawks Bay and being a bit more progressive in the vineyard and getting a little farther away from that grower mentality of, or just straight up farmer mentality of just get a crop and, you know, get as much as you can. And as opposed to, we're trying to make wine out yeah. of this, you know, not just grow grapes.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, that's always been my philosophy philosophy with reds is especially I mean whites you can get away with a little bit more cropping but um obviously because you you need juicier sort of wines but um with reds yeah you, there's no shortcuts you've no. got you gotta crop it low get that concentration and um yeah be authentic about it
0: and um you know I'm just kind of going jogging the memory of previous. Podcast and how it relates because so many times I mention Paratua and my experience over there. Um, you know, one thing we've talked about is the clones of Cabernet over there and how uh, the difference between the Bridge Paw soils and the Gibbet gravels. So I did, you know, like a whole series on the Gibbet gravels, yeah. uh, and that wasn't to uh, particularly the amount of work I've done on, in Bridge Paw with a bunch of different sites to take anything away from Bridge Paw because. I've multiple times put a paw, particularly Paratua, but also some Malbec uh, wine in, in a Gibbett Gravel's strictly winemaker's hand, and then they taste it and they go, oh, you guys can do that, like, we can't do that, which is, yeah. you know, sort of fleshier, you know, mochas and, you know, fleshier fruit, I guess, is the way to put it, you know.
1: Yeah. I think, no, you can. You can in the Gravels, but it's just how you manage the tannins. So, um, you know, some guys in the... Well, I I can't really say because I don't really know, but um, it seems to me that some some of the gravels winemakers take the wines off skins too soon. Mm. So you haven't got that really nice um, integration of the tannins with the fruit before it goes into barrel. Yeah, certainly Um, Jenny doesn't. (laughs) No, Jenny wouldn't, no, for sure, no. Um, If, yeah... (laughs) <laughs> yeah. If Jenny keeps wine um, on skins longer, than, you know, less than 21 days, that's pretty, that's unusual. Yeah, of, um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, oh man, I've learned so much of her over the years, she's yeah. such a great winemaker and uh, she's such a wealth of knowledge, um, yeah, man, we're so lucky to have her in Hawke's Bay. Um, yeah, so I guess the difference would be that that tannin structure between the, the gravels and the, the bridge bar triangle. For me, the bridge pass soils, particularly on the red gravels, um, maybe not so much much on the ashier sort of stuff on top, um, but where we are, those really deep red gravels, um, I think what we're getting is a really nice savoury note to the wines, uh, beautiful aromatics, but the tannin tends to be very chalky or powdery for me, whereas the um, um, the Gimlet gravels tends tend to be a little bit more angular, a little bit harsher. Uh, they need time to yeah, integrate yeah, yeah, in into the wine. Um, when when I was making the wines at Sacred Hill, um, we did lots and lots of aerative pump overs, um, long macerations, um, particularly with Cabernet, um, Merlot. It would depend, but nothing would be on skins less than 28 days um, with Merlot. Mm. Uh, Cabernets could have been up to 40 days on skins. Um, I wonder,
0: I'm I was just thinking, I wonder if. Uh, and
1: but very young vines in those days, too. So. You're
0: starting to see, it's a combination of things, but with the giblet gravels being uh, what it is, and then it's kind of all about the trademark and the soil, <laughs> those two things are what bind that group of random wineries altogether obviously Mm -hmm. that they're all there but uh but that that what is that association as opposed to Bordeaux or Grand Cru or whatever other classification you could come up with and uh a lot of the wine writing around say the annual vintage selection and even just the give gravels overall is that it's like without a doubt these are great wines and they're world-class wines and they're and they're in this classic style and all that, but it's what is going to punch out from the group. And in being a group, there has been a collective move to the middle a little bit. And a lot of the the writers I've noticed, particularly in the last two sets of AVS reviews, have been okay. What's going to be different? And if you really read between the lines of what they're writing and what wines got chosen, they're they've pulled out some weird ones that you go, oh, why did they choose that one? Because I think this one's really good too. Why did they pick that one over that one? And it's, I think they're trying to, um, because they're an outsider, um, uh, write or score something higher, whether it's Andrew Callard who, who picks the actual, you know, gives his advice on which mm-hmm. wines should be picked. Uh, they're looking for something different. Now, if you get a lineup of Bridge paw Wines, just the nature of the fact that it's a bigger region there isn't that sort of tight-knit group of an association, the wines are a little more all over the place and in a good way. You know, like there's, you know, Paratua is completely different than Natarua, mm. different than Alpha Domus, you know, where, um, you know, going through some Ghibli Gravels tasting, sometimes you could get confused on who's who, yeah. you know, because there's a bit of a stylistic thing there. How much of that has to do with the soil as it has to do with the association and this you know, what is a quality Hawke's Bay, Bordeaux blend, or Syrah's probably up for question. And I think, I hope that with, uh, you know, that the, you know, that there will be, I, I'm trying to push it a little bit, even just the fact doing Malbec. <laughs> but I I think what's cool about the bridge Pa is, uh, you know, you have Ash Ridge is over here, and is yeah, over here. And,
1: and Ash, the Ash Ridge soils are quite different to where we are. Yep. Yeah. Um, because I think they have more ash, yeah, in, in, the, in the soils. Um, but the, it's still deep gravels underneath. But I think they've got a little bit more topsoil than we have.
0: I think so. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Uh, but then you know, right across the road, you've got Tiawa, which is on pretty Both. much one <laughs> side of the driveway. <laughs> it's more or less Bridge Bar Triangle, and then the other side, it's um, it's Tiawa soils, yeah, yeah Tiawa soils, and then is are the hillsides that overlook? I don't the think they are. Par, I oh, don't, sorry, the the, the Gim- Gim- Gravels are they part of the? They, I don't think not? they are. No, no.
0: but they're uh, they're sort of their own little appellation, yeah. You know, which is probably another reason why, uh, Balancia wines are such standouts is because they're really different mm-hmm. than than everything else that's out there. You know.
1: Yeah. Well, um, when I um when I was at Sacred Hill, one of the um interest most interesting um experiences I had with um, Syrah was we were buying the Gimlet gravel section of Syrah at the bottom of the hillside from Cyprus and um, we would do two or three picks through there because we had uh, really gravelly sections and then we had the wash from the hillside where you'd have these um, uh, sort of flows into the Across the road, it's kind of like clay. Clay, very yeah, clay. Yeah. Lots of clay, and the best wine came from those clay sections, and they were the juiciest, most aromatic, mm. um, best tannin, um, and so yeah, I don't know, don't know why, but uh, for it could be a
0: combination reason, of the both, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. but. It was it was deep deep clay it wasn't oh, yeah, like yeah, just yeah. a little bit yeah we're the talking
0: thousands of years of yeah a, lo- a long long time yeah, so yeah.
1: but um you could see it you'd walk down a row and then there'd be these bloody triffids growing <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest of the vines would be quite low and um, mm. you know struggling um, so those struggling vines would pick early um, they'd be riper early but they wouldn't have the same concentration as the later picked stuff that was growing on with deeper, richer soils, um, offering something else. Mm. Um, but when you put them together, those um, those vines that were grown on the clay, they just lifted th- everything in those stonier soil wines. Um, but they combined so well with the tannin from the gravelly soils um, that you just had this complete wine, but you had to treat the the vineyard, or each. Uh, it could even just be bays. You know, two bays, then one bay, and then half a bay. And it, you might be um, hand picking around one vine, <laughs> but you could taste it if you take if you walk along the vines and you you taste them, you could pick. Well, I mean, this one, this one, this one, we we will not be picking. This will be picking all right everything yeah yeah, yeah yeah today yeah. Well,
0: but that type of stuff is uh it's what makes those are the difference between making a great wine and like yeah that's pretty good you know because yeah. uh it's the same thing with you know hand sorting as close to the pick as you can and things like that or you know because once you mix it up you can't unmix it yeah, you know it's like it's yeah. done yeah. so yeah. uh that may have been that one vine but there were one vines probably in 20 different spots or something and then those will be picked later or something yeah. so but you, once they're in you can't get them out you yeah, know exactly yeah
1: so um well cool man when you find that in the gimlet gravels anyway you get oh you get braids braids lots, braids, and lots yeah, of yeah. braiding and um yeah and that actually um you'll find that some of those siltier soils, if you can hang them out later, you get so much more richness out of the wines as well. So who who do you
0: think has the more siltier sites on that, from your experience on the gravel? From memory.
1: Uh, from memory, Sacred Hill definitely did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, just where we were, uh, n- not all of it, but uh, down towards through the through the Syrah section and um, part of the Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm. Um, but I think what we did in those days was, once we figured out um, what was what, they um, changed the irrigation um, drippers so mm-hmm. that the richer soils were getting less water and the, the bonier stuff was getting more... Water. So water.
0: Hot yeah. topic these days.
1: Mmm. hawk spiders.
0: Yeah. Yeah, particularly for the giblet gravels, it's going to be really interesting to see where that all lands. Just went to another meeting about that last week. And, uh, and then you have uh, James who said to me, again, I don't remember if this was on mic or, or before or after that, you know, if uh, <clears throat> all, with all those rocks, the gibble Gravels could grow some great microbes on the cool side of the rocks that could assist in the vines. And I thought, okay, James, well, we need to get you down to the Gibb Gravels because <laughs> there's nobody talking like that around here. Everybody's just worried about irrigation at the moment. So... But I suppose through composting and things like that, you know, they're well,
1: Kingsley Tobin um, was organic in the early days, mm. and uh, he was making some beautiful wines. I'll tell you what,
0: at that AVS tasting, and I, I really want to get him on the podcast Dermot's wines have just turned a yeah. corner at Stonecroft. They were tasting mm. ridiculous, really yeah. good, silky, to the fact that everybody at the end was kind of asking him what's going on. What are you doing? It's a magician. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well it's called, you know, I think it's It's commitment. It's yeah. commitment it's, and um, it's it's thick skins and uh yeah. and healthy vines and happy vines and things like yeah. that. So yeah.
1: And he's done it tough for a few years cuz he, you know, he's had to turn the vineyard around. Mm. Um,
0: yeah, no, and and I think... Uh, no
1: disrespect to Ellen, but, um, you know, the, the vines were old. Yeah, yeah, they
0: it. just needed, a, like, a youthful, you know, a bit yeah. of youth, and not that he's the youngest guy or anything, but yeah. a little bit of a fresh look at things. And, um, you know, I think he's done a great job of carrying on that and taking it into the next phase. Yeah. And to go back to that association, I would say without a doubt that is the most valuable thing is that we have that tasting, and we have those discussions yeah, once here, It was such a good atmosphere yeah. and good questions, and everybody was so cool, and, you know, it was my first time going to that tasting. And not that I haven't had that general experience at most Hawks Bay tastings, but just to have that many great growers and winemakers in one room, you know, you guys down from Auckland and Mills Reef, and yeah. uh, just a ton of experience in the room, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, probably the best thing to come out of that Association is that collaboration and what do we do as a group and, uh, and maybe you know when now you have mission who has a history with organics and they have a block that are a few blocks that have kept it and you know you have Paul Mooney who admittedly said I don't you know I wasn't convinced in the beginning but now I am is that you know was, I think we were talking about a cab Franc site that was run organically that he just absolutely loves and um
1: on Cape Front, man yeah
0: <laughs> and uh obviously Villa Maria is committed to uh organics i think till yeah. 2020 or 2021 they should be fully organic so yeah, which is great you know that that's that's where i think they're going to head of the game and um again going back to the conversation with James you know all the grand cru you know french wineries are moving in that direction because they see the value yeah. in their how land
1: how many italian yeah, is it's called. It's never been conventional. Yeah, always been
0: it's value. Out. You know, and and that conversation was coming up at the wa- those water meetings is, you know, what's going to happen when the water gets turned off? And you say, well, you can't do dairy on. Say for bridge pile or something, you can't do certain crops on this. Mm. So now you own this block of land, yeah. and all you can do on it is really grow grapes on it. Mm. So
1: I think one of the concerns is that a lot of the rootstocks they've used for planting have uh, quite shallow rooting rootstocks, but I don't know how much of that is because they're getting irrigated all the time, and so they, they tend to Give stay, them a up, chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. stay up quite high, um, because when you look at um, some of the rootstocks that are used in Bordeaux, which they don't have any irrigation, um, it's 14, 3309 same as what we've got here yeah, and yeah. RG and things like that so um, and they get deep roots over time but it takes a long time to do it
0: I think uh, I don't know I just think um, you're keeping your probably the good metaphor a fitting metaphor is you're keeping your you know the head in the sand or you know it is because you're not yeah. which is actually what you should be doing is looking down into the ground to know that you know we don't need to be irrigating as much and the fact is is we're not going to be able to so you yeah. might as well
1: well one of the um i think you know with there's a lot of really really um, talented and very knowledgeable people in new zealand um, and one of the guys is damien martin and he studied in bordeaux he's a Hawkes bay boy he studied in french he did a his doctorate in Viticulture in France, mm. so that's how big a brain he's, he's got. He's committed, but <laughs> he he started the vineyards of Ara and um, down in Marlborough, and his whole philosophy was when you irrigate, you irrigate as if it's a rain event, so it's more natural and, mm. and that kind of thing. Um, so, um,
0: which is in tune with what Mark Krasnell is saying, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, you know, you know these guys like that that have. Got these great ideas, and um, they're just ahead of their time, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Um, you know, we're all too maybe Marlborough's not the place to do it because it's Sauvignon Blanc, and you need a lot of water because mm. it's kind of like it's almost like growing bloody, ma- you know, um, almond nuts or something. You need <laughs> a huge amount of water to uh, to produce that um, particular aroma and whatever it is they've got down there. Um, but yeah those guys you know if you could tip their brains <laughs> be yeah, well that's what really I would good. be talking to so, if, if uh,
0: yeah. and I th- I um, obviously you're doing what you can do at Paratua but um, I keep joking around with Mara to say you know it's coming around it's coming around because growers are approaching me to say like well, what do you think you know do you want any of this fruit and I just my first thing is, is do you have any interest in Transitioning to organic, and yeah. I hope that some of the other youngish or sort of, I guess we're middle, getting into middle age now, winemakers are uh, are saying the same thing. Years. Oh, nice! Must be uh, all those years of uh, those winnings on your cycling that you can <laughs> retire on. It's just been gaining interest, yeah, you know. Yeah,
1: those three bottles. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, cool, man. We just did an hour and twenty. I don't know if you're aware of that, but. We'll probably leave it there since we poured it the last like of the... lunchtime at
1: Paratula. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I was going to say, we just poured the last of the wine, so... Um, uh, well,
1: it's, a, you know, a good bottle of claret should be shared. Mm. So, and two people is the perfect <coughs> amount, so...
0: Yeah, we'll look forward to uh, opening up some more with you over Harvest. Definitely. Coming year. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, thank you, Jason, for doing that. That was great to speak with you. Uh, Paratua.com for all their wines. I am at Decibel Dan on all the handles. I'll be in Australia this week. Hope to do three podcasts in three days. Be back soon. Cheers.